Welcome to Civil Discourse. This podcast will use government documents to illuminate the workings of the American government and offer context around the effects of government agencies in your everyday life. And now your hosts, Nia Rogers, public affairs librarian, and Dr. John Augenbaugh, political science professor. Hey, Augie. Good morning, Nia. How are you? I'm excellent. How are you? Uh, I'm very good. Thank you. Um, I'm excited about our next department, and you know why? Why is that? Because it's your favorite department, and the reason I know this is because it shares a name with your favoritist clause in the Constitution. <laughs> and for anybody who's listened for any length of time, they will know that that is the Commerce Clause. Augie believes that everything in the universe happens because of the Commerce Clause. When NASA's looking out with the telescope and the universe is doing all these amazing things, yeah, because of the Commerce Clause. Okay, let's try to pull that. Let's pull, try to pull the train back into the station. Okay. Okay. Now, first of all, okay, it's not necessarily my favorite clause of the U.S. Constitution. It's just that so much of what the federal government can do is rooted in the Commerce Clause, right? That sounds like wiggle language to me. Well, of course it is, because I'm a college <laughs> professor and I teach constitutional law. I was going right? to say, you're <laughs> practically a constitutional lawyer. Yes, <laughs> wiggle language, wiggle language. But for listeners, our department today, okay, is the Department of Commerce. Um, and um, once again, and this is a, a running theme throughout these podcast episodes about federal government executive branch departments, there were some things that I learned in doing the research on this department that just completely and utterly blew my mind. I have a new theory about the development of departments. Okay, what's your new theory? that, That just occurred to me between last week and this week, which is they make a new department and they turn it into the kitchen sink. So like previous departments are like, oh, hey, you know what we'd like to get rid of? We'd (laughs) like to get rid of this thing. Put it in the new department. (laughs) Give it to the new guy. It's like when you hire the the newest person on the team and they have to bring the donuts or or we've talked about the Supreme Court. The baby Supreme Court justice has to get the door whenever somebody knocks on the door. Yeah, during the conference, right? It's their job until there's a new, new, new justice and then they get to not be right so kavanaugh got a break because he only had to do that for a relatively short period of time well and and, and amy coney barrett had even a a shorter period of time right right because but but then like some of them did it for 12 years stephen Breyer did it for over a decade right where where they're like, dude, can't we just hire a new justice so that I can stop having to get up and get the door every time? So that's my theory with departments. My my theory with departments is that a president says, we need a Department of Commerce. And then everybody else goes, hey, you know what? You know, be really good in the Department of Commerce. And then they just they look around for the thing they don't want to do anymore and they hand it over to commerce. Well, is, it, is that my is my theory even remotely correct? Well, I mean, we've seen this with a number of the departments, right? Right. Every time there's a new one, they're like, interior, we have an interior department. You know what they should take care of. Well, and and, and remember the nickname for the Department of the Interior for decades was the Department of Everything Else. Right. And I think it's, I think that's just the way we make departments. 
so it, 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 <laughs> but what is slightly unusual with the Department of Commerce was how a particular secretary of the Department of Commerce actually used it to acquire other <laughs> units. Right. See, that's okay. how I would do it. Okay. If we made, if if President Biden tomorrow made a Department of the whatever Hefty Frefty, and they put me in charge of it, I would start looking around at other departments and saying, "I want that, and I want that, and I want that." I would try to take all the good stuff from other departments if I could. You know, Nia, in the private sector, you would be one of those acquisition and merger czars. Oh, right? I, if I had the money, I would. I would be. I would be Richard Gere from Pretty Woman. Like I'd be just taking people's companies and breaking them apart and <laughs> doing all kinds of stuff. Um, so this department was actually not just commerce. Right at the beginning, it was commerce and labor. Okay, um, and that's nineteen oh three. Nineteen oh three. Yeah. Um, oh, February 14th, Valentine's Day. Uh, I didn't I, notice that in your notes until I wondered now. if you I wondered, if, I wondered if you uh, uh, if you had taken note of that. That's the president going to the nation. OK, because I checked that with like five different sources. And then I went, so to sweet. The, I went to the Department of Commerce's website and, you know, all the sources were like this was created on February 14th. And I'm like. Is like nobody else noticing. Well, and, 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 it's, and it's kind of sort of bizarre that I actually did. Well, and <laughs> unless you're going to make your spouse the department chair, I mean, the, the sorry, the, the secretary, secretary of that department, yeah. that's not very nice Valentine's present. <laughs> I'm just saying. Um, but they didn't they didn't last that but like 10 years later they just become the department of commerce and labor gets cut free right which is we'll be talking about labor later uh yeah we will be talking about the department of labor as a separate entity separate entity but um uh uh a decade later um during the i believe woodrow wilson administration um, they went ahead and separated uh, labor from the Department of Commerce. And labor will be next. Sorry, yeah. listeners. Labor will be next because it is actually yeah. there's nothing created between those. But so. But so 1903, they're like, and we have this commerce and labor and and what fell under it? Well, here's where it gets really interesting in, in listeners uh, to Nia's point. Pretty quickly. The Department of Commerce um, expanded dramatically, and I'm just going to go ahead and and give you um, how the Department of Commerce has kind of sort of accumulated various <laughs> units over time. So this is going to take a, a, a couple of minutes. So listeners, bear with me. Um, the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office um, was transferred from Interior to Commerce. Um, and the um, Federal Employment Stabilization Office existed within the department throughout the Great Depression, but eventually got transferred to the Labor Department. Okay. Oh, okay. All well, right. that makes sense. Federal yeah. Employment Stabilization. Station. Okay. Okay. But then here's where things get really strange. The National Weather Service 
which used to be entitled the Weather Bureau, gets transferred from the Department of Agriculture to Commerce in 1940. The Civil Aeronautics Authority was merged into the department also in 1940. <laughs> but that doesn't make any sense. I'm just going to say the weather department being well I'm okay maybe it makes a little bit of sense it makes sense for for it to be under agriculture to start with because really farmers and the weather, weather that's like they're yes. they care about almost nothing else except their family's god and the weather right I mean, like because I mean, you can't grow things if you have bad weather they and again listeners huge... me and I both come from um, uh, families with farming connections and the number of conversations in oh, my family about the weather, about the weather, and okay. not as a passing the time kind of thing or as a filler space, but an actual conversation. Yes, I mean, like, <laughs> it, right. And okay. there's not a farmer alive that can't tell you from some ache in their body. Yes, what weather is coming? Like they know these things. They live by this. So it's interesting to me that it got moved into commerce. But now that I'm thinking it through with your answer that commerce is everything, Nia, I don't know why I'm confused, is that <laughs> I can see where it would affect, like I can see where it affect, it would affect interstate transportation and all that other kind of stuff. Because. Okay. But again, think about this. A number of this the number of units that get moved into commerce, many of them would seem to be better fits for the Department of Transportation, which we will talk about later. Right, it doesn't get, come along for quite a while. Okay, for, you know, until I think, what was it? The 1960s or 70s, right? But you get, so Civil Aeronautics moves into commerce in 1940. Makes sense because that's when you start to get private airplanes. Okay. Public Roads Administration, okay, which um, used to be a part of the Federal Works Agency during the New Deal, gets moved to commerce in 49. And that makes sense because it was its own thing, right? The Federal okay. Works Agency was its own thing. So Okay, it wasn't a department the, level. Okay, but should it not be part of the Department of Labor? Oh, well, yeah, except we don't have that yet. No, we do. 49, we did. No, 49, we did. Okay. So, and, okay. so this is just the chairs of commerce saying, and I shall acquire this. Well, acquire but it this. actually flows pretty nicely from, okay, a secretary that we're going to spend quite a bit of time on who really... <laughs> really created the culture of the Department of Commerce early on in its history, and it continued for decades afterwards. Okay, so what okay. we're seeing is the result of that. Of that, okay. Okay. But here are some of the other units. The Federal Aviation Agency was created in 1958, okay, um, um, and the Civil Aeronautics Authority was abolished. So you want to talk about the Commerce Department having a really close connection, okay, to the airline industry. And that's been one of the criticisms of the Commerce Department historically is the Commerce Department is supposed to regulate industries that produce commerce for the United States. 
but they are way too close, okay, to, to the airlines. Okay. Well, to effectively regulate a lot of these industries. Well, it's like ag, right? It's yeah. that it's that it's that, that um that, thank you, that, tension. That's exactly yeah. the word between I want I need to regulate this, but I also need to encourage this. Yes, they, they have both missions. Yep. In their mission statements, right? It's to encourage commerce, but also to regulate. Okay. 1961, uh, Congress passed the International Travel Act uh, to encourage <laughs> Americans, again, to go overseas. <laughs> we'd like, like you to get out of the country, please. Just for vacation. Okay, but we'd but, like you to go. <laughs> but the idea was that if the United States, we would use international travel as a way to promote Western democracy around the world. And that, kids, is known as soft power. Yeah, that's soft power. As our colleague uh, Judy Twig shared with us in a previous podcast episode, that's soft power, guys, right? <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, because we'll send Americans, you know, to your country and they will spend money in your country. Um, and our airline industries will set up, you know, routes and um, uh, uh, and our planes will land in your small, you know, air airfields. OK, and, and disperse is, our American citizens to spend American dollars in your local economy. There, there you go. Right. Which is what keeps some nations and some parts of nations afloat. Okay. Is tourism. I mean, I, I'm not sure that Florida would exist without tourism. Oh, I'm just well, putting it yeah, out there. Yeah, yeah. think about right? that. Like, right? Okay. right, Orlando, that entire area is just, I don't I know. Mean, for years, the Disney Corporation would justify its huge corporate imprint in both Florida and California on the grounds that it was doing more to promote America and American democracy than many federal government agencies. Right? And that might not be the worst argument in the world. Okay. We, we could talk about Disney for days, but okay, what, Disney, what Blue is... Jeans, McDonald's. Okay. So... <laughs> oh well, oh my gosh, McDonald's is everywhere. Okay. Uh, Starbucks now has joined that group. Okay. 1960s, as part of uh, President Johnson's Great Society, we saw the creation of the Economic Development Administration. And um, um, I, I want to go ahead and be very clear, guys. In an earlier stage in my life, I actually did contract work for the federal government's Economic Development Administration. Okay, um, so full disclosure, you like that program. Well, I mean, it, it's, I like that program. Isn't that one of the things that does rural development? Oh, like, it's huge. That the, like in when you rural get America, when you get it, um, loans in rural America to build a building, isn't it sometimes coming through that? Coming through the federal government's uh, economic development uh, administration, um, and and this is particularly important in rural areas where previous industries have or are no longer prominent. So in uh, coal country um, or Rust Belt. Uh, Rust Belt manufacturing areas, you know, how do you convert 
that local economy into something that will be sustainable for the future. Um, and the EDA um, uh, was really important. The Bureau of Public Roads was finally transferred to the Department of Transportation in 1966. Ah, so 1966 is when we get the department. So okay. we're, we're a ways out from yes. that department. And, and here's another kudo, uh, listeners, for former President Richard Nixon. The Minority Business Development Agency was uh, created as a unit within the Department of Commerce. Um, at President Nixon's request in 1969. Okay. Yeah, Richard Nixon's a hard figure, isn't he? We should talk about him sometime in depth because he 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 did, he did he, so many good things, good things, and then he just he was just and then a, he just threw a grenade at it at the end, and you're like, I mean, oh man, see, you could have gone down as a great president. Evil paranoia, <laughs> you know, individual, and you're just like. How in one person can you have can you have this kind of dichotomy? Right. Right. How can you go ahead and say that I want to reestablish relationships with communist China because it's not safe for the world, okay, for this Cold War to continue, you know, in the in the route and pace it was going, but then go ahead and use the IRS to spy on your, <laughs> your political enemies. enemies, right? <laughs> oh, Richard Nixon. Um, and then, yeah, and then but, our your last one that you're that you're going to mention here is my one of my favorite agencies. I full disclosure, since Augie disclosed his connection, I have no personal connection to them and having worked with them, but I adore them. Oh, hey. The, the the unit that we're the the knee is referencing listeners is NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, which is what the National Weather Service is a part of. Right. And it has the biggest chunk of the Commerce Department's budget. Which it should. Okay. Because because ask anybody in Galveston what it's like to get a hurricane when you don't know it's coming. Yes. Galveston was decimated at the turn of the century. But um, this in is the really... early 1900s because they had no idea that that hurricane was going to make landfall and it just it, it it destroyed Galveston. And now we know. We know you can tell a hurricane's coming like 10 days out and people can prepare, we can save lives. It's and this is a really good example of how in the United States, we take something like NOAA, the National Weather Service, okay, and we tie it explicitly to commerce, right? Oh, well, that's true. Shipping and okay, and so flights and all those other kinds of things are affected by... You know, so for stuff like, you know, hurricane warnings or tornado warnings, you know, many of us would be like, you know, we want to save lives. Right. Right. We want to save homes. We want to save schools. Okay. Hospitals. But the logic of, of the government is we do we make money with all those things. We should be we should protect the business 
<laughs> well, that's capitalism. Yeah, that's capitalism. That's, that's capitalism. Our okay. government is based in protecting capitalism. Okay. Um, but I'm going to choose to look at it as protecting lives because that's but, what, but, I, that I, what I worry about. And, and listeners, if you want to know how much data Noah collects, you have to read Michael Lewis's book, The Fifth Risk, because he's had he has an entire chapter about all the data that Noah collects. Okay. And it is just awe-inspiring the amount, oh. the amount of data. Okay, that and, Noah has. Okay. And the current discussions about the river, about the Colorado River. Yes. And rainfall and all that stuff, all that comes out of NOAA. All of that comes out of, well, it comes out of the National Weather Service, but like this historical, <laughs> excuse me, the historical amount of rain a place gets and yeah. tracking over time, whether it's getting that rain or not, that means somebody has to measure it every day someone yes. has to measure it and they have yes. to write it down on a little in a little notebook and then put it on a spreadsheet and send it to somebody else who crunches all those numbers so that when the reporter says to you they've had 42 percent less rainfall than they have in the previous decade that number is actually based on a real figure from somebody who measured it and a lot of it is a lot of their work is done by citizen scientists yes at schools and stuff where they teach kids about weather and they teach kids about rainfall and all that and they measure and they send those measurements in obviously the kids don't i mean adults noah, do that but still it's but noah has agreements with nations around the world right okay there there is an information sharing that goes on in regards to the collection of weather data okay that if we could replicate it with other parts, other policies, okay, we would have a much more peaceful world, okay? Agreed. Because, okay, it is truly remarkable, okay? Yeah, but the, only two, the only two real organizations within the federal government that do that on a regular basis, that, that make their, that, that network around the world as far as I can tell, are NOAA and NASA. Yeah. Because the space, the space agencies around the world, it was a big deal when Putin pulled Russia out of out of the International Space Station. Because until now, we have treated space as a common good. And yep. we have treated weather as a common knowledge thing. We should all know what's going on with the weather. We should all understand what's going on with our atmosphere. So Anyway, but you're about to talk to us about, right, the person who acquired or who set up the acquisition um, mode that commerce. Yes. And in and, and, and Nia, uh, much like Richard Nixon, uh, the public figure we're about ready to discuss is another one of those figures that has been widely criticized for one part of his government career, <laughs> but he did so much good in other parts, right? And who I'm talking about here is uh, Herbert Hoover, okay? Herbert Hoover ran the department in the 1920s. Can we just have a brief moment about 
as a side note, I, I know we're going off on a brief tangent. It back in the day, presidents seem to have served in other ways in the federal government in addition to serving as president. Yes. And modernly, we don't see as much of that. We're, now, they serve in the state sometimes as governors or in the Senate as senators, but they don't run departments, departments that's right. the way they did back in the day. But he's not the only one, right? We have Taft, we have, we have lots of others who have served in these variety of positions. It's like they almost had a training ground of sure. Yes. Run a department, learn how to be an administrator, learn how to administer something big and sprawling and weird, like the United States is big and sprawling and weird, right? And now we've got a, a newer sort of paradigm where we're not seeing that as much. Yeah, that, I, I think that's, uh, that's a very fair assessment um, in regards to uh, the training and background of our presidential candidates and those who end up winning the presidential elections. Um, but I mean, it was not unusual um, throughout the 19th century and for a good chunk of the 20th century um, that you demonstrated your um, presidential skills by first um, uh, running a federal government office. Yeah, um, like it. That's exactly it. Thank you. That's exactly the phrase I'm looking for is you demonstrated your ability to run the country by running a smaller subsection of the country and doing it reasonably well. Oh, well right? if you, yes. If you, you could point to that and say, see, I actually have this kind of experience that we're looking for. And maybe part of what was attractive about Donald Trump to people was that he had run a corporation. Right. Was, he had, yeah, notwithstanding the differences between the private sector and the public sector, right. we've discussed previously. Right, but uh, maybe but, that's what yeah, was attractive yeah. to him in part was that people thought, oh, well, he's run a big sprawling thing. Yeah, the, the only other proxy that I can see of recent vintage is former governors, right? Right. Because you yeah, run George Bush ran Texas, and Texas is huge, right? It's yeah, a, Bill Clinton ran Arkansas. Jimmy right. Carter ran uh, Georgia, right? Well, he was former governor of Georgia, right. right? But this idea of managing a huge department in the executive branch um, was seen as one of the ways that you could demonstrate to uh, voters that you had the chops to be president. And if there was anybody who could say that they had demonstrated an ability to run the federal government executive branch, it was Herbert Hoover, right? Um, he was appointed the Secretary of Commerce in 1921. And interestingly enough, <laughs> the president at that time was Harding. And Harding gave Hoover a choice. You could either be the Secretary of the Interior or the Secretary of the Commerce. And because Commerce was a recently created department, the expectation in the Harding administration was that Hoover would pick 
interior. Ah. Which we, as we discussed before, was huge. Yeah, it was huge and was the department of everything else. Right. He could have really played around and done lots of stuff. But Hoover picked commerce in part because he was a former business person. Okay. But also because Hoover envisioned a commerce department that would be like the the center, the, the hub of the nation's economic growth and stability. Right? Okay. That makes so, sense. If you're thinking about the fact that we are a capitalist nation, commerce would be the one that you would think would. And his approach to the nation's economy was somewhat unusual in the United States at that time, all right? And scholars refer to it as the third alternative, right? So at the turn of the 20th century, you basically saw two versions of economic systems in Western democracies at that time. In the United States, you had laissez-faire capitalism. Anything goes. Yes, unrestrained capitalism. The alternative, which had arisen in some European nations, okay, was socialism, right? Hoover thought that you could split the difference, all right? Really? Yes, okay. Um, and he basically said it was the, 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 and this kind of sort of reflected progressive thought at that time. If you wanted to avoid the bust part of the boom and bust cycles of American capitalism, <laughs> uh-huh. the government should get involved to kind of smooth the cycle. Ah, So okay. you don't have the, the you know, if super it was a high, pendulum. super low, super high, super low. Yeah. I mean, if it's a pendulum, you wouldn't get the kind of sort of massive, widely, you know, um, uh, oscillation in the economy from doing really, really well to, oh my goodness, we're going to have another. We're in a depression. (laughs) It's great. It's the eighties. It's bad. It's the thirties and going back and forth. Okay. To assist, to assist in that effort, (laughs) Hoover demanded and received from Harding the authority to coordinate economic activities throughout the government and whoa yes so that's a lot of power like yes and he created sub departments and committees to regulate everything from manufacturing statistics to air travel and he took units of other departments that other departments like like would slough off or not ask for a lot of money from Congress to fund because they didn't really like them or didn't really know what they did. Hoover was just like, oh yeah, I'll take them. Okay. (laughs) So what you're telling me is that Hoover and I are the same person. Oh goodness. Yes. Right. (laughs) I will acquire this out of this group. So did he take them or did he just sort of like, 
put his guy in there to be in charge of it, but it was in another department. Because see, that would also be a good way is to like infiltrate the other departments. Well, first, Hoover would get permission from the president to either sit in meetings of other departments or allow Hoover to send one of his people to sit in on the meetings. And they, they then they would collect intelligence as to what was going on in those meetings and figure out whether or not those units were actually a priority in those other departments. And if they weren't, then Hoover would make a proposal to the president and then he would work his back channels with members of Congress and say, well, if you're concerned about what's going on in, you know, this unit in this department, um, I will make it a priority. <laughs> and then we'll. <laughs> so he just did. So he just sort of maneuvered yes. himself into being basically in charge of everything. He was. <laughs> he is my hero. I did he, not know Herbert Hoover was my hero. He was the czar of the American economy, which makes his behavior as president even more confounding. Yeah, because during the Depression as president, he didn't do any. We get Hoovervilles. Like he didn't. His basic response to the Great Depression was we can't, the government cannot intercede okay directly the government should encourage industries to do various things but the federal government can't intercede to the extent that what we saw fdr do with the new deal okay, okay. so he didn't believe in sort of nationalization he's like no. you've got to let the system try to work okay but uh, I put in I put in the research notes, Nia, a couple of examples. Like when Hoover took over Commerce Department, no American family had radios. Okay. By the time he became president, 10 million American families owned a radio. Okay. And to encourage Americans to buy radios. And to develop that industry, he convinced Congress to pass the Radio Act of 1927 that would allow the government to intervene and abolish radio stations that were deemed non-useful to the public. <laughs> pirate radio. <laughs> I, there's actually a pirate radio station that was in England that played music that the BBC, I guess, or whatever it was, didn't allow to be played. But that's interesting, non-useful to the public. Boy, that's not subjective, is it? Not at all. Or Oh, my great googly mooglies. Can you imagine people's parents would, during the time of Elvis, would have said, take that off the radio, take the radio. That's not okay, useful. Or, or think about his Hoover's role in the Department of Commerce's role in developing air travel in the United States, okay? Prior to the 1920s, air travel was, was seen as kind of sort of this unusual, very dangerous way, okay, <laughs> to get from point A to point B, right? Well, and it was a, 
a rather elite and was extremely expensive right you didn't yes. i mean you and i would never have dreamed of getting on a plane back in the day it would cost okay. what you and i would pay now for a first class ticket to australia i mean like yeah, it would, i mean it, 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 the it, modern it, equivalent would be thousands it was just beyond the reach of most americans to be able to use air travel but what he did was <laughs> he subsidized making or the the uh, company he subsidized companies to make more planes he um, uh, uh, had the federal government subsidize the development of emergency landing fields. He routinized safety features at airfields. Ah. So, so things like lights, radio beams, okay? Oh, okay, to make it safer. To land and to, to land and off. travel, right? Because okay. that's when most accidents happen: are landing and taking, taking right? off. So, okay. And then he used some of his Commerce Department money to encourage farmers to use planes for crop dusting. Which okay, becomes, so he ties it to agriculture. He ties there, it to yes. nice. He is me. Okay. The use Didn't he do something about inspections like he like now we inspect planes where we didn't uh, and when planes first come in for the first right 20 years of plane of of air travel it's a it's a wild west kind of industry. There's not any standards for licensing. If you could afford a plane, you could go in one like you know and there didn't he do a lot with this sort of standardizing what we think of now as the boring stuff that the FAA does to keep planes from just falling out of the sky. He did that. He also had a national conference on street and highway safety. So before President Eisenhower in the 1950s, a couple decades later, okay, comes up with the national highway system. Right. Hoover as a defense against Russia. Yes. Hoover was um, uh, uh, encouraging states and local governments to come up with, um, if you will, um, you know, kind of sort of model street construction and layouts, okay, so that automobiles, which again, wealthy Americans could own, but most poorer Americans could not. He thought that if you had, you know, uh, uh, similar street systems and highway systems across the country, it would be a boon for the automobile. Industry. Well, and it would be standardized in that way yes. that would make it safer. Also, I'm sure that at some point he envisioned at least some commerce happening with vehicles as vehicles during his lifetime became bigger and carried more and carried actual materials Girl. instead of just people right because in the beginning they just carried people but after a while somebody said hey you know if we put a box on this 
we could put stuff in the box and carry it from here to the next state over. That's right. Okay. You get produce going really early that way and lots of other stuff like that. That's interesting. And because he's at the federal level, he can get the states to all. This is the sort of get him on board. This is the precursor, Nia, to cooperative federalism. Okay. Okay, because remember, cooperative federalism arises with FDR and the New Deal, right. right? Where the federal government would give, you know, direct grants to state and local governments to do stuff. Okay, Hoover. Okay, oh, so he's laying the groundwork for he's that. He's laying the groundwork. Okay. So the difference between Hoover and FDR. Okay, is that Hoover one preferred the more indirect approach, whereas <laughs> FDR would basically just go ahead and throw money at a problem, say to the states, do you want this money? If so, here are the strings and conditions. Hoover would go ahead and say, okay, don't you want better <laughs> roads? Okay. And can't we get a whole bunch of experts? He trusted academics, okay? Okay. The Commerce Department, okay, employed hundreds of academics from various fields and asked them to accumulate data, which then the Commerce Department would say to a particular industry, we've studied this. This is the best way to go about doing this. Yeah, if you put these, if you put um, bumps in your roads, it will slow the cars down and keep people from running, getting run over who are, because uh, I think, sorry, just as a brief, uh, again, um, side note, I'm not entirely sure that listeners are aware there were no street markings for the longest time in the United States because cars and people shared cars, people's carts and horses all shared the roads together for quite a long time in our country, relatively speaking. The automobile was a fad. Like at the beginning, yes. it was not seen as a, oh, this is going to be our way of life. Little did we know. But, it, you know, so you're talking about being, if you get any kind of standardizing, it'll be safer for everybody on that on the, in that space, because now you're talking about animals, people, and cars all together. And, and, and think about it in terms of automobiles. It was the Commerce Department under Hoover's leadership that came up with the Uniform Vehicle Code to be adopted by states in regards to automobile safety. It was also Hoover's Commerce Department that came up with the Model Municipal Traffic Ordinance for adoption by cities. Which um, by cyclists and passengers and and sorry and pedestrians will tell you is the basis of, or is the beginning of the idea that cars are going to be more important than yes other types of transportation yes. which goes to his ideas about commerce mm -hmm. and moving com right if you can get people in vehicles then that sells vehicles and it theoretically allows people to live further away from city centers and there's all kinds of stuff that comes out of that good and bad for younger americans if you want to know why multiple generations of americans okay have wanted to buy their own homes you can actually root that in a commerce department 
marketing effort in the 1920s. He came up with an own your own, own your own home campaign as a way to develop the construction industry in the United States. <laughs> he he's like the fairy godfather of 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 commerce of of um industry, right? I will I will plink you with my little, you know, the wand with the star on the end. Yes, with plink, here's automobiles, plink, here's houses or the real estate industry. Plink, here's all these things where he's trying to well and, wow. and, and get this. He convinced United States Steel, which at that time was the largest manufacturer of steel in the world, to adopt an eight-hour workday because his academics studied, okay, the making of steel and the effect on um, steel workers' bodies and concluded that an eight-hour workday, okay, was better for workers' bodies, which meant that they would be more productive. <laughs> and they would be workers longer. Wow. It's not about eight hour day because it's better for you as a human in terms of, well, I mean, it is partly better for you as a human, but it's also much more about the industry will be stronger if we make, wow, that's kind of. In, in, in Nia, you, you and I did an entire podcast episode about the Colorado River Compact. Uh -huh. Hoover was the federal government, if you will, agency head, department head, who pushed for the United States Congress to recognize that compact. Which makes sense when you consider that the Colorado River services seven states and was a huge impact on the commerce of that area. So and look at it now. Agriculture is really struggling in the Southwest right now. Yep. And it's in part because the rivers, I mean, we're seeing agriculture struggle as a business. So, so, okay. So Hoover's, and then you see him as a president and he really doesn't do. He was only willing to go so far in terms of the government's, if you will, support and intervention, because to go any further, Hoover, like many business elites, um, uh, in the United States at that time, thought that if the federal government went any further, it would it would be akin to socialism. And we're not a socialist country, right? <laughs> Dang it! Okay, we're a capitalist country, right? Okay. Um, so, uh, but you know what it also tells me about Hoover? It tells me that if he had wanted to be a dictator. Oh. When he became president, he would have had no trouble doing it. Like his ability oh. to to look across the government and see what he needed to get a hold of in order to do what he wanted to do. Like that's a really and we were talking earlier about Nixon, who also could also had that ability to look across the federal government and say, oh, if I pull this string, it will affect this thing. Not every president has had that, but Hoover could have been a dictator. I mean, we're lucky that he wasn't personality-wise. And listeners, to give you a sense power of, mad. To give you a sense of how well respected Hoover was, even after the fiasco that was his presidential administration, 
President Truman asked Hoover to lead a commission about how the executive branch of the federal government should be reorganized post-World War II. Really? Yeah, uh, one of the, the best known uh, public administration commissions in the history of the United States uh, was led by Herbert Hoover, the Hoover Commission, okay? okay. Um, but so there's a couple other things, Nia, I wanted to get to. Wait, I want to ask you a brief question. Yeah. Any scandals in his in commerce? None. None while he was uh, the the uh, 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 Secretary of Commerce. Really? So he did it all clean. He his, or he hid the bodies so well, no right. one ever found one. By all accounts, he was a very pious, upright, ethical person. Okay. That's great. I mean, because at that point, we have other scandals going on around. Well, particularly in the Department of the Interior. Which right. Where we discussed, <laughs> okay, where, you know, the, the, the federal government is, you know, buying oil leases and then particular individuals within the government were selling the leases. Okay. Right? Yeah, just, and, but, you know. yeah, just not good. Okay. So, sorry. So the organization, do you want to? Yeah, what again, this is one of the more fascinating things for me. The commerce now, this is the modern organization, yeah, not that, the, not the all the other stuff. Yeah. The, the, the modern commerce department, okay, the three largest departments in terms of their budget allocation and in terms of the ones you've heard of, okay, um, NOAA, the National Weather Service. Second, Patent and Trademark Office. And then third, and this just blows. Anytime I tell people where the Census Bureau is located, they're like, it's located in the Department of Commerce? Yep. The Census Bureau is in the Department of Commerce, okay? Um, and it has a significant portion of the department's budget. Well, it's isn't... Um, I'm going to say something and you're going to say, no, no, Nia, but isn't it the only mandated constitutional, yes. like whatever else you may do in terms of, of creating departments or doing anything else, you must count the people Yes, that every is, 10 years. You must is, have a census. Yes, that is in Article 1 of the Constitution. Um, and unlike a lot of what's listed in the articles, which talk about the government having the authority to do X, the census is required. Right. Okay. And it's required because of representation in Congress. You have to know where the people are so that you can apportion the, con the, the Congress appropriately to have and representation for the folks. Yeah. Although Augie and I think that the, the Congress is probably now a little too small for the number of people we have, but yes, but, but then, then, then the downside is then we'd you, have more people and more it, strife and more partisanship. So do we really want that? <laughs> so pick your poison. Right. right. And the picture at this point is, can only get so big. Like then you'd have to back up way further to get everybody in the picture. I'm just saying, okay. So I didn't realize he had done that commission. That's cool. Yeah. Um, but uh, there have been uh, um, uh, reorganization efforts. Um, um, uh, uh, liberals historically have wanted to um, disband the Commerce Department. 
because um, particularly with the model created by Herbert Hoover, um, the Commerce Department gets kind of sort of labeled as promoting corporate welfare. <laughs> I, Which... mean, I mean, let's face it. I mean, what Hoover did was basically either throw goose, money at corporations, you know, either goose or directly promote particular industries. Right. right? I mean, and as a side note, just briefly, you, any president can like the organization of the federal government, as you just said, is not in the Constitution. So, so a, presidents, a, a president could say, no more commerce. We're going to have a president. We're going to have the Department of something else, and we're going to spread out all the bits and move them around. But if a president wanted to do that, they have to get whose approval? I'm assuming Congress. Congress. Because, Which I'm assuming you couldn't get right now for approving everybody getting a cupcake for lunch, well, let, alone, I mean, let alone getting rid of an entire department, although yeah, maybe. But, but again, this is an example of checks and balances, right? Just because a president wants to do X, okay, within the executive branch, at some point, the president's going to have to either get the authority or the money from Congress to do it, right? Right, because Congress has a oh right, because Congress has to to authorize the the, the agency the, or the or the department or the, or the whatever. Or the oh, okay, yes. So they would have to authorize the undepartmenting of well, something. No, no, again, it has to originate with Congress. It has to originate with Congress. Okay. okay. So, for instance, um, in 2012, Barack Obama. Um, as he was about ready to begin his second term, um, announced that he wanted to um, uh, close the Department of Commerce and create a new agency um, that would include the Office of U.S. Trade Representative, um, as well as the Export-Import Bank of the United States. And this new agency, um, what... What did he want to call it? Um, focused on trade and exports. Okay. Um, and he convinced Democratic members of Congress to propose this reorganization, and it went nowhere. It went nowhere. Right. Mm. And when former presidents have tried to reallocate money, from departments to other departments, usually Congress, okay, readjusts. Um, well, well, in in the next budget cycle, punish the department or agency because basically the department or agency didn't do with its money what Congress wanted them to do. Okay. Yeah. Um, by the way. It's not just Democrats who wanted to get rid of the Department of Commerce. <laughs> um, rather infamously during the. Um, oh, are you going to talk about sweet Rick Perry, who couldn't yep. remember the name of the three that he wanted to get rid of? Yeah, Rick Perry, when he was running for president, <laughs> um, said he wanted to get rid of three departments, um, education, uh, commerce, and then he couldn't remember energy, which was. <laughs> It wasn't he the Secretary of Energy? Yeah, he eventually, 
became the Secretary <laughs> of Energy for the Trump administration. <laughs> I'm going to get rid of that agency, or I'll be the department head. Uh, we could go either way with that, really. <laughs> yeah. Um, wow. Um, and, and by the way, some of Governor Perry's criticisms of commerce have been made by uh, various academics, um, including the fact that units within the Department of Commerce have kind of sort of come and gone rather quickly. I mean, Nia, you and I talked about that earlier in the podcast episode, right? Okay. Right. Um, and, you know, the Economic Development Administration is kind of sort of redundant at the federal level, seeing as though nearly all 50 states have their own economic development authority. Right. Right. Um, now, Nia, you and I both know uh, uh, one of the other reorganization efforts, and that is to remove the Census Bureau from the Commerce Department and make it an independent regulatory commission in an attempt to get politics out of the counting of Americans. Which I would love. Okay. I, I I personally support that idea. The cop... The difficulty with regulatory commissions is how the commissioners are appointed. So it's really hard to take politics out of anything in the American political system because there's a there's complications with that. But the Census Bureau has been used, has been weaponized more than once. Yeah. And it's un, it's extremely unfortunate because, you know, the one thing the founders were like, but y'all need to do this forever. And we we can't seem to get it to not be a source of grumpiness. So who get who gets counted? How do they get counted? What questions do they get asked? What I mean, you know, there's just a lot of so long you, form, short form, all kinds of complications. And then you get something like a pandemic, which is what happened to us this time, and you don't get the final percentages of people that are harder to track down because there's nobody to do the work. Like you can't go yeah. knock on people's doors. Yep. So it all gets very complicated. But I want to you have one thing in your notes that I that before we go, I want to bring up, which is um, and it's and I remember reading because I read the fifth risk at your um, recommendation. Donald Trump wanted to privatize. The National Weather Service. Yeah. Right. He wanted that to be. OK, so just in case anybody's wondering, the Weather Channel is a private company. Yes, it's owned by a private company yep. that uses the weather data yes. from the National Weather Service to have their. And if anybody here tries to get a cable package with with just the Weather Channel, you have to buy the premium cable package because mm -hmm. it's a really expensive premium channel. It's up there with HBO and Cinemax and all those other. Yes. Yeah. Like, and and that's because it's privately owned. And he wanted to put the agency into some sort of private ownership, right? Like the yeah, he thought NOAA itself. Yeah, he thought that uh, the government should get out of the weather business and that there were already uh, private sector companies who could uh, better manage um, and make uh, money doing so, um, the work that NOAA does. Yeah, I'm against that. I'm, I, you know, I'm kind of sort of against that. I mean, I'm generally, you know, uh, 
you know, a, a moderate, um, you know, capitalist libertarian. Okay. But the weather's kind of sort of like, right. Hey, I agree with you. It's, it's probably that what upsets me is that it is such a common, like, all humans care about the weather, the weather for a variety right. of reasons. Okay. I don't think that should be privatized. Just like I know there are countries where you have to pay if it rains on your house and you capture the water. Yes. Like you have to pay for rainwater, which it blows my mind because I don't understand that. Um, and so this idea that – so I – there are some industries that I'm like, well, that privatizing makes sense, right? That's a that's a not an outrageous thing to think about. But the weather kind of freaks me out. I'm like, yeah. could we could we not privatize the weather, please? That seems like a bad idea because that means that that company could tell you things or not tell you things. Well, and that might be life altering. And then the the company that owns the Weather Channel um uh the the ceo of the company um was also a big donor to the trump presidential campaign and you know when that became public knowledge i was just like okay i don't want patronage to decide how we go ahead and make a decision about a government agency that does more than just tell us the weather, right? Right, right. Um, keeps and, these historical statistics and does and all these, visits. and they do studies all the time yes. about climate yeah. and, yeah. yeah, no, I'm, I'm, yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, presidents contemplate all kinds of stuff. I want to be clear that I'm not entirely certain how much deep thought any president gives some things that they just say or they because we have presidents all the time who say things like you know what we ought to do we ought to just privatize the census or whatever they say that in an off-the-cuff remark that turns into a whole yeah. giant thing sometimes and maybe that's not always i don't know the hot mic thing we gotta we gotta get people out of the habit of just talking when they're in front of other people <laughs> Because yeah. sometimes stuff gets said that it just freaks people out for no reason. But but Augie and I would like to go on the record as saying that we would like NOAA to stay as a federal agency. Yes, big thumb up <laughs> on that. Yep. Augie, thank you so much. This is a this is, I didn't realize Herbert Hoover was this much of a positive figure and this much of a powerful figure in Hoover. the yeah. in the Department of the Commerce. It's really interesting. Yeah, this this has been one of the joys of doing this series is finding out um these all this cool stuff stuff, right and yeah and and i knew he had been the secretary of commerce i just didn't know how he transformed it right and Um, how good he was at it it. yeah i mean clearly this was his yes his shining talent moment yeah i mean of all the things that he could point to and he did a lot of stuff other than not a really good job as president during the start of the Great Depression, but of all the stuff that he did, um, uh, it was pretty impressive. Yeah. 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 Cool. Yeah. Thank you. And so next time we will talk about labor. All right. Sounds good. Bye, Mia. Bye, Augie.
You've been listening to Civil Discourse, brought to you by VCU Libraries. Opinions expressed are solely the speaker's own and do not reflect the views or opinions of VCU or VCU Libraries. Special thanks to the Workshop for Technical Assistance. Music by Isaac Hobson. Find more information at guides.library.vcu.edu slash discourse. As always, no documents were harmed in the making of this podcast.